0: Father, it's, uh, it is sweet to be able to come together with other believers, followers of Jesus, and to, to sing and affirm about the forgiveness that we know we have. To not wonder or doubt, but to know that we are in your love, and your forgiveness is real, that our yesterdays are gone, we are something new, and that we can say that with confidence and sincerity of heart is astounding to us. So we, it, it makes thankfulness just pour out of us. So thank you. Thank you. Lord, some of our friends have come here today and, and they're, they're not assured of that forgiveness. And so as we turn our attention to your word and even just having sung The truth of forgiveness that is found at the cross, through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his resurrection, guaranteeing that he is victorious over death and sin. We're no longer subject to it. Would you let today be the day for for our friends who are not followers of yours to see that there is a forgiveness that can be theirs, and that they'd receive it. You extend it. I pray that they'd receive it. So we give us eyes to see now and ears to hear. We love your word and we want it to rule in authority over us so that you would rule in authority over us and we give ourselves now to to the instruction of that word. We give ourselves to it because you're worthy of our mind's attention and you're worthy of our heart's affection. So we pray that you'd have them both. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're gonna look, uh, continuing at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. If you uh, are first time with us, we've been working through the book of Colossians now and we are at the end of chapter three. So we're gonna look at that today. This is one of those weeks where I'm, I'm, Always thankful to be your pastor, but I was particularly thankful, uh, maybe in a unique way to be your pastor this week for a couple of reasons. One, this weekend, a bunch of our students uh, participated in Foodless Feast, uh, so they were with us first service. They're now over in, uh, in our youth area, but they, they were uh, fasting as a way to both identify with but also raise awareness and, and support for global hunger. And so I just I love watching our students get a heart for the things that God cares about. And so it was really rich to be with them this week and I was really blessed by that. I was blessed by watching young men and young women who want to care about the things that God cares about. And so I just felt particularly blessed to be the pastor of this place as I was with those students this weekend. And then I also felt really blessed this week as I was, I was just, I was reminded what a privilege it is as your pastor to have just the joy of meditating on God's word and studying God's word uh, uh, throughout the week, it's, it's spending a, a significant amount of my week thinking on God's word so that I can do this, so that I can come and, and share that word with you. But in particular this week, as I encountered the command that we're gonna see here, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I, here's what I found happening to me this week, and this was the privilege of getting to study throughout the week for hours upon hours. The, the privilege of that was that God's word is alive, and you can't come in contact with it and not be transformed. You cannot sincerely give yourself, it's, not, it's a book unlike any other. It is a living book. And so to, to just get the privilege of, as a pastor to, which I know you all didn't get that privilege. You had to go turn a wrench or stand in a classroom. And what, what a privilege I had this week to pull away and be with God and let, just meditate upon his word. And I just found two things happening to my heart this week as I examined those commands, which apply to me because I'm a father. I found, I found a renewed desire to obey that command. I found in myself a, a desire to be obedient to that command that could not have just been from me. It was not because I read a motivational speech and I thought, well, yeah, that's a good idea. I should do that. I found that as I encountered God's word, I wanted to obey it in in increasing measure. I want to be a dad who does not provoke his children so that they would become discouraged. I want to do that. And the second thing I found was welling up within me the power of the Holy Spirit to then obey that command in a way that goes beyond my ability, that there is something coming through God's word and the power of his spirit moving through his word, which which. When we give ourselves to it, it it equips us to do what it is it commands us to do. And I love that because there is no self-help book anywhere on the shelf or on Amazon that when I read it uh, and get its advice about how I should do parenting better or husbanding better or leading better, there is no self-help book that in the process of taking its advice also then fills me with the power to obey that advice. Or to live out that advice. But God's word is unique because as I study and read it and give myself to it, I not only receive the command which is good and life-giving. Fathers, don't provoke your kids. And I'm like, yes, that's good. That's right. And I'm affirming that my spirit, something in me is going, yes, yes, that is right. And at the very same time, the, the same affirmation that is welling up within me is also empowering me to go and do it. And I don't know if you understand what a rich thing that is. To have God's word in our hands, which is living and active, and able to not just give us commands, which are life-giving and good, but are able to, in the very process of taking in the commands, at the same time, is able to empower us to uh, to live out those commands, and so experiencing flourishing and life and joy. Now, some of you, you may be new to the Bible, and so you may be thinking, "You're talking crazy talk," but I just want to tell you, give it a try. I find that most people who are new to the Bible don't believe in its power because they've never really given it a chance. But it's not like anything else. I will swear up and down to that till my last breath. It is unlike anything else. So we're gonna encounter God's word today as we do each Sunday. And we're gonna find that command. We're gonna find the command, children, obey your parents for this is right in the Lord. We're gonna find that um, We're going to find some things about masters and slaves, which is interesting. Uh, And so we want to talk a little bit about that. And what do we, how do we handle that? How do we think about that? Because I, I find that most of the times when we encounter these scriptures, these portions of scripture where slavery is talked about, one of the realities is we think, well, slavery's wicked. Is the Bible affirming slavery? What's going on here? I don't even know what to do with this, right? And we encounter people like Sam Harris, uh, who is a leader in the New Atheist Movement. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with him. He writes a lot, and he's pretty prominent in those circles. And, and Sam loves to point to this reality. He loves to point to the, uh, see, you read Colossians chapter three, verse 22 through chapter four, verse one. And it's talking about slavery and masters and slaves and saying, slaves, obey your masters. See, the Bible condones slavery. We know slavery is wrong and wicked and atrocious and because the Bible affirms it then, see, you can't count on the Bible and you can't believe in the God that Christians worship because he is a God who condones slavery. I wanna give you some, some thoughts on that. Sam is wrong, by the way, okay? I'm gonna share some thoughts with you Why? All right, so, but, but here's the sum total of kind of where we're headed. The question I want to help us ask today is this. The scriptures really speak to us about the kind of cultures of authority that we are to create as Christians. In other words, there's a kind of authority that gets used in the world, or maybe I should say this way, authority gets used in the world in a, in a particular kind of a way, and when you come to Christ, He calls you to use authority very differently than how the world uses it. He calls you to a new type of authority, a new use of it, both to the way you come underneath authority that he places in your life and also the way you exercise authority when you have it over someone else's life. So we're gonna reflect on that today in two particular spheres that our text addresses. And it's the kind of authority, the kind of culture of authority we create in our homes and the kind of culture of authority that we create in our places of work. And I want to think about that those two places, those two spheres today. Some of you are bosses, right? So you're in your workplace and you, you wield authority. Uh, some of you are employees, and so you come underneath authority when you go to work. Some of you are parents, and so you have authority in your home. Some of you are children, and so you uh, come underneath authority in your home. One of the things I want to say right off the bat, I want to help you understand is that whether you are under authority or whether you hold authority, you participate in the creation of a culture of authority in your home and in your place of work. You are participating. It's not just those who have authority that create the culture of authority, it's those who must respond to authority and come underneath it that also create the kind of culture of authority that the Bible calls us to help participate in creating as followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? Right? So whether you are a person who says, well, I, I, don't, I don't have any authority, I, I uh, did an elective yesterday for the kids at Foodless Feast, and it was on leadership, just principles of leadership. And I asked them, how many of you lead something, and because they're all pretty young, no one raised their hands. <laughs> I thought, why did you come to this? Right? And they're like, because we want to learn to lead. And I was like, okay, awesome. I love that, because they want to learn to lead before they have any kind of positional leadership. Right? They want to they learn that. Whether or not you have any position of authority, any position of leadership, you are part of creating a culture of authority in your home, right? So kids, listen up. You help create the kind of culture of authority that exists in your home by how you react to your parents' authority. And let's presume that we want a biblical culture of authority. Let me just say that whether I come underneath authority or whether I am in authority, uh, I want to create the kind of culture of authority that the Bible talks about because it's better for both those who are in authority and those who are not, who are coming under authority, it is better to have that kind of culture than the type of authority culture that the world offers us. Right? I I promise you. Let's just see if that proves true as we look at the text. So let's look first then uh, at the text. Starting in chapter 3, verse 20, says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, Fathers, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." Okay, so I said, our question as we look at this text is, what kind of cultures of authority in the home and in the place of work is God calling us to put into place? And the first thing that we see about the kind of cultures of authority that Christians should be promoting and helping facilitate is that they are, they are discerning when it comes to authority. Cultures that are discerning about authority. And I want to say two things about that. One Number one is that there is such a thing as legitimate authority is an important thing for Christians to believe and to know. There is such a thing as legitimate authority not unlike the first command that we see there, children obey your parents in the Lord. That's a type of authority that God prescribes and says is good and is legitimate for a parent to exercise authority over their child is a good type of authority. Now it can be used well or it can be used poorly, but it is legitimate authority. The reason I take the time to point that out is because the further into a postmodern relativistic individualistic culture we go, the further away from the legitimacy of authority we, move. Here's what I mean by that. If you subscribe to the idea that every person's moral compass is prescribed by themselves and themselves alone, you are going to, over time, have a very difficult ability in seeing that anyone ever has a right to exercise authority over you. The longer you live in that mindset and in that worldview, the harder it becomes to believe there is such a thing at all as legitimate authority. And let me just tell you, as some of us who have grown for a little while and had to live underneath authority for a while, if you assume that no one can ever have legitimate authority in your life, this world will not go well for you. There is a need to recognize, and not just so it goes well with you in the world, but there is a need to recognize when authority is legitimate. When it is legitimate. Romans 13 talks about that, in the governing authorities. Paul talks about it there. He's talking about it here with parents and with children right? There is a legitimate authority that an employer exercises over employees. And so a Christian has to recognize and be able to be discerning that there is one such a thing as legitimate authority. Now the second thing, as we come to this idea of masters and slaves, as we come to that, one of the things we also recognize is that Christians are not naive enough to believe that all authority is just authority. That there is, while there is legitimate authority, there is also such a thing as unjust authority wielded in a way that is absolutely atrocious. That is a reality that all Christians must. We're not these people who walk around as followers of Jesus and just go, well, I guess God's the establisher of all authority, therefore I guess all authority is just. No, no. The scriptures again and again speak to the reality of living under unjust authority. And by the way, Christians for most of the history of the movement of Christianity have lived and been the victims of unjust authority. Christianity in in our kind of version of it, in our cultural place and time, honestly, is probably the least persecuted, uh, least difficult version of Christianity that's ever existed on the planet. Prior to us and prior to kind of our sphere where we happen to live, for the better part of the 2,000 years of the Christian movement, since Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, Christians have more often than not been the victims of persecution in the places of their, they have been the ones living underneath unjust authority and having to figure out how to deal with that. How to live underneath unjust authority and to live in a Christian way underneath it which is a little hint as to what Paul is getting at here when he talks about slaves and masters. Now, having said that there is such a thing as unjust authority, let me almost hit a pause button here, okay, because what I wanna do is I wanna take a, I'm gonna give you four reasons why the scriptures do not affirm slavery. Because this is something I find is very difficult when Christians encounter this and they're not exactly sure when they read Colossians chapter three and four. They're not exactly sure what to do with it. They're not sure when they read in the Old Testament about slavery and Le- Leviticus 25. They're not exactly sure how to handle that. And so can I just give you four, four ways to help handle it? Would that be okay? Awesome, okay, it's so like six of you are in. That's great, that's awesome. That's good, that's more than the usual three. I usually say three of you are in. Good. The rest of you take a little nap. We'll come back. Okay? Here we go. I want to give you four things, okay? Number one is when you read about slavery, particularly in the Old Testament, you need to recognize the difference between slavery in the ancient Near East, where Israel was located, and slavery in the 15th to 19th centuries of, the, of North America. That those are two very different things for the most part, right? More often than not, when you read your Old Testament, and again, I'm gonna be very quick here, okay? So if you're wanting a deep dive, this is gonna be very unsatisfying, so I apologize, all right? More often than not, and when you're reading the Old Testament about slavery, what you're looking at is a form of indentured servitude that was offered as a way out of debt, and then those who were enslaved or were, were servants would eventually be released when their debt had been paid off. It was actually a way by which the poor and those who encountered difficulty could come underneath provision for a time pay off debt, store up resources, and then be released. And the scriptures, the Old Testament, has all kinds of boundaries that are placed around this kind of servitude. They have all kinds of moments like you must release the servant at this point, and then again at this point they must be released. In fact, land must be returned to them. So there's a very protective environment that's created around this idea of what gets translated slavery is probably better translated servanthood. In fact, not to, again, not to go too deep here, but the original publication of the King James Bible only used the word in the Old Testament slavery once out of 800 occurrences of the Hebrew term that, used, that, was, that is now translated over 100 times slavery. It was almost always in the original English translation translated servant. That is way more than you wanted or needed, all right? So... That's the first thing we need to recognize. There is a difference between what we think of in our context as slavery, race-based, chattel form of slavery, which is life-ship ownership of one person over another, very different than what the scriptures tend to talk about in the Old Testament. Now, Roman slavery in the New Testament tends to be more like the kind of slavery that you and I are familiar with. We'll address that in just a moment. Because that's the context Paul is writing to in Colossians, is a Roman colony uh, where slavery was more like what you and I are used to thinking of. The second thing I want you to see and be able to respond with in this conversation is that the trajectory of the gospel, this is probably the most important part. The trajectory of the gospel itself eliminates slavery over time. So take Matthew 19, chapter 19, verse 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is part and parcel with the gospel. Anyone who believes the gospel must live out this reality. I will choose to love not just my brother in Christ, not just my sister in Christ, but I will love my neighbor as myself. Can I love my neighbor and own my neighbor? You cannot. Good. I'm glad someone said no. Well done. This is untrue. So the reality is just the gospel influence in the world over time is meant to eradicate slavery. One of the great tragedies, friends, one of the great tragedies of slavery as it existed in North America is that so many people who claim to believe the gospel failed to live out the implications of the gospel and eradicate slavery. They failed to do it. Time and time again, they use the scriptures inappropriately to affirm slavery when in fact it does the, just the very basic reality of Matthew 19, 19 teaches us that there's no way slavery can exist, coexist with the gospel. This is a great principle of the Reformation. If you know when when I talk about the Reformation, I'm talking about the establishment of the Protestant church, Right? One of the great principles of Scripture interpretation in the Protestant Reformation is we use what is clear to interpret what is unclear. In other words, you use what is clear in Scripture like a command like Matthew 19, 19, love your neighbor as yourself is a pretty clear command, yes, church? And then you look at Colossians chapter three and you're like, huh, well, how should I think about this idea of what Paul is saying about masters and slaves, like what You use, anytime you go, well, this is not quite clear exactly how I should apply this or live this out, what do you use to help interpret that? You use what is clear, what is broader and overarching in Scripture to interpret specific nuances that you're a little unsure about. Does that make sense? That's a a key principle of the Reformation and interpretation of Scripture. So, the second thing is we see that it is the trajectory of the Gospel that is meant to eliminate Scripture. But... Lest you say, well, why not be more direct about it? Why be so indirect? Look at how direct the scripture is when you come to the New Testament and you see the commands of the New Testament are seeking to eliminate slavery. So you get places, and again, real quick hit here, okay? You get places like 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul is saying, look, the most important thing, if you find yourself to be a slave and not free... The most important thing is that you live for Christ in whatever circumstance you're in. But then he follows that immediately by saying, but if you can, if you can make yourself free, if you can achieve freedom, you should, you should achieve it. In other words, that's a preferable situation to slavery. That that's a good thing. Freedom is good, slavery is bad, you should pursue freedom if you can win it. Even This is, speaks to how important the gospel is. Something as atrocious as slavery, he's still gonna say, But living in in the difficult circumstances that you're in as a follower of Jesus is even more important than that. That's how deeply important the gospel is. Then we're going to go from 1 Corinthians 7 to like texts like 1 Timothy 10 where we get a list. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10, excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 where we get this list of things that Paul just says, these are counter to following Jesus. You cannot live in these things and follow Jesus. And he lists this whole long list of things, things like sexual immorality among others. But number two or number three in the list is those who would enslave or own someone else. Those who he calls them enslavers. In other words, someone who would steal someone and sell them to someone else. Those who would take ownership of someone. He's saying you can't walk with Jesus and do that. It's not possible. So, right there, we have a contradiction right there. Then you get a, a little bit more nuanced version in, in Philemon, which doesn't only has one chapter, so chapter one, verse sixteen in Philemon, where he's talking to a master about a runaway slave who has come to know Jesus, and he sends the runaway slave back to his master, and he says. I want you to receive him. He's arguing that he should release him so that he can come and be free and not be a slave any longer. But he doesn't out and out command it because he wants it to be done in freedom of heart on the part of the master, not just as an obedience to a command. And so he says, I want you to receive him not as a slave any longer, but as a dear brother. As a dear brother. That's Philemon, verse 16. Receive this former slave, as a dear brother. The New Testament again and again and again just pushes against slavery at every turn. So then we get to Colossians, like this text, and we say, well, what what am I supposed to do with that? And here's the fourth thing I want you to see. Teaching Christians to live in an unjust system is not the same thing as affirming the unjust system. Teaching Christians to live in an unjust system is not the same thing as affirming the unjust system. Remember, again, that in this day and age, Christianity is a brand new movement. They have no cultural power. I mean, they sit, they sit in no seats of authority, there is, no, there is no Christian movement that is able to rewrite the laws of Rome or to call for transformation at a societal level. They are a tiny minority group operating in a powerful empire. And so if you're Paul and you're watching both masters and slaves come to saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ, what do you do? Do you call for a slave uprising? Do you, what's gonna, what is Rome going to do if you call for that? Do you, do you say, masters, release every slave? Or do you say, let's figure out how to, in a nuanced way, live in an unjust system in a way that points to how good Jesus is? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, let's figure this out. There are all kinds of Roman laws on the books about slaves who did acquire their freedom, and if they acquired it before they were 30 years old, they could never vote or own land. And so there were all kinds of reasons why it would've been very, very difficult for Paul to just command the Colossians, hey, all slaves need to be released. Let's be done with it. This is what we should do. Rather, he goes about subverting the system of slavery existing in the Roman world, not by calling for its direct overthrow, but by saying, let's live out the gospel as masters and slaves together and figure out how we live in this unjust system, Whether you, whichever position you are in. I'm gonna give commands to masters about how they should treat slaves. I'm gonna give commands to slaves about how they should react to their masters. In particular, if you're both followers of Jesus, this is gonna be a really unique setup that you should have. And so we're gonna talk about how to live in the midst of an unjust system. How many of you know as Christians, we will not always have the power to overthrow unjust systems in this world? And we're gonna have to figure out with great nimbleness how to live inside of them. How to operate in the midst of an unjust reality. That's just part and parcel with being Christians living in the world until Jesus comes back and makes it all good again and restores it and makes it new and whole. We look to that day, but we will always be in the midst of unjust systems. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Does that make sense? That's why he's commanding what he's commanding. One of my favorite things, um, I need to make sure I get his, I, I need to get this right. Yeah, Dr. Peter Williams, who's in charge of Tyndale House in, uh, in England, he talks about the just shocking reality that, that the commands that Paul is giving here would have been for anyone who encountered, to see masters and slaves treating one another in the way that Paul is calling for here would have testified so profoundly to the gospel. And he points back to, there's, this, there's this, this thing that happens in a lot of these New Testament letters when you read them, if you've read them. Have you noticed the whole, like, greet one another with a holy kiss thing? Yes, no? Yeah, so, uh, so Dr. Williams calls it uh, Paul's kissing campaign. And he, and he says, like, you know, we don't really do that. We don't greet with a kiss. And in the Roman culture, that would have been normal. It would have been normal for two people from the same social class to greet one another with a kiss. That would have been very normal. Do you know what would have been really abnormal? For a master and a slave, for the one who is the highest place of society and the one who is the lowest place of society, to greet one another with a kiss would have been absolutely astoundingly shocking to anyone who witnessed it. To put my cheek against the cheek of one who is my master or of whom I am a slave, that would never transpire. And so even subtle little things that Paul says, like, hey, in the church, greet one another with a holy kiss, with warmth of affection. What's he saying? We're breaking down every social class, every barrier, everything that says, I am more valuable because I hold this position and you hold that position. At every turn, do you see it? At every turn, he is eradicating this vile thing where one person owns another person. Okay, that's not a deep dive, but it's at least a few thoughts on how to address that. Now, can we turn to creating a culture of authority in our homes, parents? Yeah, moms and dads, and, and, and children, yes? Awesome, let's do it. Okay, a couple thoughts here. A couple thoughts, the first thing we see, right, is that command, children, obey your parents in everything right? Please pay attention to the in everything part, for this is right in the Lord. Now, doesn't mean your parents are always right. Doesn't mean parents are always wise. Doesn't mean parents always know exactly what to do. Any good, honest parent knows when they don't know what to do, right? But at the very least, here's what we see. We see that what what Paul wants us to do as parents and as children, he wants us to connect obedience to parents to obedience to him. You see, the reason it's it's important, parents, to help our kids connect obeying us, well, let me say it this way. We need to help our kids connect obeying us to obeying the Lord. Because if they can't learn to obey us, they will never learn to obey him. And the ultimate reason it's important is not because I'm in charge, dang it. And the ultimate reason it's important is not because I know more than you. The ultimate reason it's important that children learn to obey their parents is that in learning to obey our parents, we learn to obey the Lord. That's it. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? We learn to obey the Lord. So, as parents, we have to help our kids learn that obeying us is part of their thriving and and receiving a blessing from God. Ephesians 6 talks has basically a little bit longer description of this passage. It's a little longer writing on the same subject matter. And there, Paul reminds us that uh, when God gave the Ten Commandments, the only one of the Ten Commandments that came with a promise was this one. When it said, children, it said, Honor your fathers and mothers that it might go well with you in the land. In other words, that you might prosper. And Paul reminds, in Ephesians 6, he reminds the Ephesians of that reality. He says, essentially, what he's saying is, parents, the reason it's so important for us to help our kids connect obeying us to obeying God is that they need to understand that in obeying us, they will re- be the recipients of God's blessing and favor, and it will go well with them. Now, do we want things to go well with our kids? Yeah, absolutely. So that means we have to help them in whatever nuanced ways we can connect the reality of this is not just, it's not arbitrary that I am your parent and you are my child. It is selected by God that it would be so. And in learning to obey me, you will learn to obey the Lord and in learning to obey the Lord, you will thrive. Do you know that your kids thriving in life depends upon their ability to obey and love God? Disobedience to God leads to destruction Obedience to God leads to thriving, every time without fail. This is the nature of the world. Now, so we learn; uh, they learn to obey uh, God by learning to obey us. Another thing we need to do then, as parents, if that's the reality, we need to learn to create a grid of biblical truth in our homes. Create a grid of biblical truth in our homes. And then the third thing I'll say is, and then teach our kids to apply that biblical grid to all their decision making. Far superior to just saying, obey me because I said obey, is to help your kids understand what the scriptures call for out of life and to think through and process it so that together you help them discern what the grid of scripture says about how they are to live because you will not always be there to help them make right decisions. Do you know that? Right, You're gonna, they're gonna go to school, they are gonna go off into the world, and this, this should be our goal, right? We don't want them in our homes when, we are, when they are 45. We want them out. I want mine out. And I want them to make wise decisions. I want them to understand, and the only way to do that is if I help them understand what does the grid of scripture say about every situation and circumstance in life. That means helping them understand how I'm putting my decisions through the grid of scripture and explaining why I make the decisions I make as a dad, why I choose the discipline I choose, why I choose to make this choice financially, why we bought this car, why why mom and I will stay up late and hash out an argument rather than going to sleep angry. Right? Why we operate the way we operate and helping them put a biblical grid in place in their life and then inviting them to use that grid to discern right and wrong. And then the last thing I'll say, and again, these are my best attempts to to try and apply this text, okay? Is that we need to explain our discipline to our kids. We need to explain our discipline to our kids. Now by that, I don't mean we owe them an explanation of every choice that we make. But what I do mean is, if we want to help our kids connect our authority to God's authority, then one of the best things we can do is help them explain why we're making the choices we're making. Now, do you know that in the midst of that discipline, they don't want to hear your explanation? Like, yeah, thanks for the grounding. I don't wanna hear it, right? But, but figuring out ways to circle back around to help them understand that you have reason for doing what you do, that it is not arbitrary, and that you are not just flying off at the handle and, and just saying, I'm just gonna throw out arbitrary discipline. So helping explain that, right? Helping explain that. Now, the other thing I'll say is a good mentor friend of mine shared this to me one time. I found it incredibly helpful. The other side of that, maybe the the harsh discipline, which we're gonna talk about here in a minute, is that we would not abdicate the discipline that we need to bring to our kids, that we wouldn't just uh, relent from it. One of the things that every parent knows is that, often when a kid is flying off the handle or having a difficult time, what you want more than anything sometimes in that moment, particularly if it's in the middle of Target, is for it to stop. You just want it to stop. Yes? And when you just want it to stop, it's very easy to then just kind of placate and let your kid hold you hostage with their emotions. And this is what a good mentor friend of mine said, never let your kid hold you hostage with their emotional reaction to your actions. You have to set the tone and the tenor of the conversation. You have to be patient and measured, but you are the one who establishes it and do not abdicate your authority and and let them essentially, by their reaction, cause you to back away from what you know to be right action as a parent because you just simply want peace move through the emotional reaction towards it, right? This is something we talk about in leadership. All good leaders, they don't run away from the barking dog, they run to the barking dog, right? I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not, but it's, it's a leadership analogy, all right? So trust me, run towards the barking dog. You probably will get bit, but it's okay. You'll survive, there's tetanus shots out there, and we'll all live. I took that analogy way too far, and it lost any sense, all right, so. Now let's talk about then the second, the second command. Let's talk about parents, where it says parents. Now what we find next, right, is we saw, children obey your parents, this is right in the Lord. And then the next command we see is fathers, and he could say fathers and mothers there, because this applies to both parents, but do you remember what we saw in the previous verses about the husbands as the head of the home? And so he's, just, he's, he's picking on dads a little bit here, and he's gonna identify fathers you have an important role to play, right? So he's gonna pick on dads a little bit, but this is equally applies to both of us. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Now the key to obeying that command is understanding what, understanding what? What does provoke mean, right? That's what we have to understand. So here's just a very simple definition of provoke. Provoke means to frustrate unnecessarily. To frustrate unnecessarily. That's what provoke means. That's why he says, lest they become discouraged, right? And so the thing that, These are questions I've been learning to ask myself with my kids and you can take them or leave them. The scripture is pretty succinct here and the thing we have to obey is don't provoke our kids. Don't exasperate them. Don't create unnecessary frustration that is beyond the frustration that they will naturally experience in learning to come underneath our discipline. I love the idea of not unnecessarily frustrating because it reminds me that my kids will not always be overjoyed at my choices as a parent in their life. That at points they will be frustrated. My job is not to not frustrate them, it's to not unnecessarily frustrate them, okay? And so here's a couple of questions that are worth, I think, kind of putting in front of us. Number one, am I using my authority to get what I want or to give them what is best for them? Am I using my authority to just get what I want, right? Which sometimes is, I just want it to be quiet right now, so I'm gonna come down with a hammer and tell you to, be quiet and silent that we're done right is that really is that really a way that I'm not going to unnecessarily frustrate them, or is there a better way? So am I using it to get what I want or am I using it to get what's best for them? Am I disciplining when correction will do? one of the ways that we can unnecessarily frustrate our kids is there are times where discipline is absolutely needed and required there are times where perhaps the hand of discipline is just, just needs a, a word of correction, and that would be sufficient. And discerning between those times can be tricky, yes, parents? It can be really hard to know. It can be really hard to know. But let's do our best to establish when a word of correction will do versus when a hand of discipline is needed and to discern between those two times. Because if we constantly run to discipline when a word of correction will do, particularly if our kid is willing to receive that word of correction, that's pretty key, when they're willing to receive it and we offer it and no discipline is necessary, but just that word of correction, we will avoid unnecessarily frustrating them. Third thing, third question I'm learning to ask myself, am I adding to discipline because of their response to my original discipline and thereby turning right discipline just into a power struggle? Here's what I mean by that. There have been times in my home, perhaps, where discipline has been enacted, and it's appropriate discipline, and the response to that is not, I receive it. (laughs) But rather, kaboom! And the top goes off, and it is an emotional reaction, and it is drama, drama, drama. And I'm thinking to myself, and in that moment, here's a key thing for me, to not unnecessarily provoke my children, A key thing for me is to not immediately do what I want to do, which is to say, oh yeah? Well, here's some more of that. Here's a little added discipline. How about you get a little more? Oh, you want some more? Okay. And to just keep raising the stakes, right? And when I escalate, what does my child do? Calm down? It's never happened, not once. I have never escalated them into submission ever they escalate as well and all of a sudden my wife's looking at me like you're unnecessarily provoking them and I'm like shh we're on the same team right so one of the things I'm learning is one of the things I'm learning is to not provoke my children is to say if their response to my discipline is not the response I would hope for if it's not right it's the wrong response does it really help me to bring the hammer of more discipline? Or is it better in that moment to set the tenor of the conversation, to lower it, to de-escalate it, and to say the discipline is what it is. It's not, it's not going away, and it's there because I love you. That's enough for now. And to figure out what to do from that, but not to escalate the situation by going, because what I've done when I escalate it and just go, and I heaped discipline upon discipline, what am I doing? I'm not any longer concerned about whatever it was that they their actions were that required the original discipline. All I'm concerned about is I'm going to be in charge and I'm gonna exercise power and in that moment, I'm not exercising it very well. I'm not exercising it very well in that moment. Okay, those are a few thoughts for the home. Now, let me, in in just the, A minute or two, let me talk about cultures of authority in our work. And I'm gonna hit these so fast, I'm not even gonna go into the scriptures, because I went longer on that first part than I wanted to. But let me just give you a couple tidbits and we'll have them on the screen. So creating a culture of authority in our work. Let's assume that you're the employee, okay? You're under authority. I want to give you a couple thoughts. Number one, creating that the right kind of culture of authority means working hard when no one but God is looking. Working hard when no one but God is looking. And I love this, because here in the text, what he says is, don't do it by way of eye service as people pleasers. Now look at the connection that he's just made there for you. If you are, don't raise your hand, but how many of you are people pleasers, and you know it, right? That's you, you're like, oh, I'm totally, I, I just, I seek approval from other people. That's not all. That's not usually a good thing in us, right? We're to, we're to seek the Lord's approval, not fear men, not fear people, or their opinion of us. And what he's saying is, if you will learn to work hard, When no one else is looking, not by way of eye service, right? Not in order to please people. In other words, by connecting those two, what he's saying is by working hard, when no one else is looking, you will undo the ties of people-pleasing that it has on your heart. You will begin to learn what it looks like just to fear God and love him and please him and not worry about pleasing people. And one of the ways you do that is work hard when no one else is looking. Second thing that I'll say is connect your heart to your work. He actually says, I want you to work heartily. I want you to work with a sincere heart. He says it, both those things in this text. And what's really great to remember there is that just dutiful uh, obedience in your, under, to the authority in your place of work is not what God requires of you. God invites you to invest your heart into your work. And some of you are thinking, I, I don't like my work. I just do my work to put bread on the table. Right, I mean, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to do work, to provide for family, to make a living, that is good. Your primary service to the kingdom might not be your place of employment. It might be something else that you do. And that is true for a lot of us, okay? Even still, God says, I want you to connect your heart to your work. And when you connect your heart to your work, what, what happens is, you understand that you are bearing the image of God as someone who works. God worked and made us to work. And when I do work well, whether it's work that is I love or I don't love, I am displaying the image of God in my work through working in a wholehearted fashion. By connecting my, and, and by the way, that helps you connect your heart to your work when you understand like, oh, this is part of my image bearing of God that I would go to work again today. Even the work that frustrates you, that feels like it's just cyclical and it's the same thing over and over, right? Like the laundry. <laughs> it's just, you do it and then there's more of it. You do it and then there's more of it, right? Anybody get frustrated by that, that kind of cycle of what seems like, you know, it just seems like so mundane. Right? But it's that stuff. It's the mundane stuff that when we see that that's part of bearing God's image, we connect our heart to it, there's a pleasure that we experience in it, I think. Now, the last thing in terms of coming underneath authority is the, the way to do that, the way to connect your heart to your work, the way to work hard when no one else is looking, it's actually in the text when he says do it because you know that you will receive a reward from God. First Corinthians chapter three talks about this, if you wanna go back and read it today. Talks about the idea that that we will receive a reward for the work that we do. If it's done well and in a just fashion and with our heart connected to it in a way that we want to display the image of God through our work and done with integrity, he calls that building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with precious stones, with jewels. And he says you will receive a reward for that. So how how do I come underneath authority at work? Ultimately... It's by believing that God will reward me for what I do and how I come underneath that authority, which is just another way of saying, I believe that God will fulfill his promises, that God keeps his promises, the promise of the gospel of eternal life and the promise of reward in serving him faithfully in this world, that because of what Jesus has done, I can believe that this reward is true and it will come about. And I keep my eyes on that. But the only way to do frustrating Feudal work is to believe that there will be a reward for that work done well. And that's God knows that, and so he gives us that promise. Work done well will receive a reward. Last thing to say here is for those of you who have authority in your place of work, if you have authority, remember what he says here, that you will be accountable for how you use that authority. And he says, those who do wrong will be held accountable and there will be no partiality. In other words, no position of authority is going to save you from being accountable for how you utilize that authority, whether you utilized it well. And always remember, this is the last thing, please always remember that those who are followers of Jesus, when they have authority, they never use that authority to, they never use up people in order to get something done. They always take into consideration that they are dealing with image bearers of God and they consider how they utilize their authority over those image bearers in such a way that they don't just use them up, churn them up as grist for the mill to get a profit out of their task that they want done. But they consider the structures they put in place, they consider whether they're just or unjust, they consider the systems by which they lead, and they do so knowing that they are gonna give an account to God for how they treated those who are made in his image over whom God gave them authority. That will mean sacrificing profit at points for the good of your employees. It will. It will mean having just practices and systems in place in your work so that those who come underneath your authority thrive and flourish and know that they are made in the image of God because they've come underneath your authority. The way you you oversee them has much to do with whether or not they will experience work as something God-given and good or whether or not they will see it as harsh and and purely menial, something that must be done in order to survive. Do Do you see the difference between those things? The misuse of power, the misuse of authority, may be the greatest tragedy that has resulted from the fall. Because everywhere we turn, authority is misused. Everywhere we turn. And as a follower of Jesus, if that's you, you are being invited into a new identity where your life, remember Colossians chapter three at the beginning, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. In other words, you're you're not what you were. You are something entirely new and you are being invited to live in authority in your home and in your place of work in an entirely new way. Come and do it. And remember that All these commands that we've been given now to to come underneath authority and to exercise authority, all those commands also come with a promise of power to live according to them because Jesus has sent his spirit to dwell in you so that you might walk with him. Let me pray and then we're gonna sing to close our time together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. thank you when we encounter difficult commands in it that we find hard to obey, that it sends us right back to you He just causes us to run right back to you and say, help us, help us obey. We see the goodness of these commands. Now we need your spirit strength. Would you give it to us? I pray that for my people today. I know that many of them are feeling the need for that. Even as they hear these commands and just ponder them, where their minds go with them, they recognize a need for you to come and strengthen them to live in obedience. Now we turn to sing to you, Lord. We've heard your word. We wanna respond just as those who would say we trust you. And sing that back to you. We love you. We turn our eyes to you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.